the New Zealand Business Podcast, brought to you by BNZ, helping you be good with money. Hi, I'm Paul Spain, and welcome along to episode six of the New Zealand Business Podcast. Now, this time around, we're spending some time with one of New Zealand's most successful and well-known business leaders, Sir Stephen Tyndall, founder of The Warehouse, The Tyndall Foundation, the K1W1 Investment Fund, and investor in dozens of New Zealand businesses. Righto, let's dive right in. So I'm here with Sir Stephen Tyndall. Great to get this time with you, a real privilege. So thank you for setting aside the time. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's good to, to be with you. Now, to, to jump in, I wonder if we can look back in time and you can share a little bit with us around how the warehouse came to be, what led to uh, starting up the warehouse. Well, it probably goes right back to my childhood, actually, Paul. And um, When I was young, I had quite a lot of, um, I guess, of a yearn to, to get into doing things that were, I suppose, business in a sort of way. So, you know, when I was quite young, I had a mowing round around all the little old ladies that lived near us in Bayswater here on the North Shore in Auckland. Uh, and then I uh, helped uh, with a grocery store. I, I was the delivery boy on a bike. And the minute I turned 15, I was allowed to then drive a van for them. <laughs> um, my dad had a retail store in Northcote. He had a um, hardware shop. I, and I used to love going and helping him. Uh, particularly, you know, from about the age of 11. Uh, so I had quite a an interesting childhood in terms of doing stuff that had a bit of business to them. Um, when I left school, my first year out from school, uh, I went and worked for George Courts, uh, which is a department store here in Auckland in Grangipi Road. Um, but I did something entrepreneurial that year as well. I'd met a guy through musical comedy that I was involved in, and we started a, a cafe in, in Takapuna and learned my first real big lesson, uh, which was um, don't take people on face value, uh, because I put my I borrowed $5,000 and put it into this venture, and uh, this person had promised 5000 as well. And what actually, how, did, how did that turn out? Well... Lucky, luckily, I was able to sell the business um, about six months after we opened it, but we couldn't afford to keep going because we had lots of debts, and uh, I wasn't prepared to go and borrow another 5000 based on the way this guy had let me down. Uh, but we, we fortunately sold it, and we got enough money to pay off all our creditors and for me to get my 5000 back, so I got out of jail there, but it was a well great done. lesson. Yeah. yeah. So I spent... Um, 12 years at George Courts and uh, went right through from uh, promotions manager. Well, I started on the floor, actually, you know, selling fabrics, and and then I became a a junior buyer, and then I was a um, merchandise manager um, responsible for about uh, 50 people that were quite a lot older than I was, and so, you know, that was all about buying the product that we sold through our seven stores at the time. And... It was early 80s that I sort of saw the world changing, really. There were um, a number of things happening, particularly in the retail sector in the United States. Uh, The the advent of of big box retailers starting, um, a lot of outlet malls, that type of thing. And I figured that I wanted to go and do something for myself. I could see that department stores were dying. And so, you know, we we, uh, raised... Uh, 40000 by selling um, some of our family assets and uh, we started the warehouse in a, in a place that was literally a warehouse not far from where we are here in Takapuna today. Wow, so from that point 
obviously there's quite a story on how you went from this uh, this initial you know warehouse store to build up you know what's what's become a you know, effectively a, you know, a billion dollar sort of plus business here in New Zealand. Maybe you can talk us through how how you got from that initial uh, store with that forty thousand dollar investment. And you know how much was that sort of part of your vision in the early days to uh, you know to really grow into uh, into a big national uh, enterprise? Yeah, sure. Well, um, what I had learned at George Courts was that it was incredibly important that you could control your own merchandise, and um, because I only had forty thousand dollars, all that really paid for was for my first computer. Now, computers in those days were very few and far between, um, particularly in retail. And I managed to, to buy a couple of old second-hand uh, NCR 2152 cash registers that actually captured data. And so we had a barcode uh, for each of our, our products. Um, I was able to go out to my supply base that I'd worked with at George Courts and ask them if they would supply us with products that they weren't able to sell um, stuff that they would normally sell through auctions and you know ten cents at the do- in the dollar, and I, I promised that I would control the data on that and, and I would pay them every fortnight for what I'd sold and I would give them a a, a running commentary on what was left and that way we got support to, for the very first store for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of product. So without having to invest in the inventory, I had you know quite a big amount of product that I could offer. Um, I used my skills in marketing that I'd learned at George Courts to advertise the fact that we had this this new enterprise up and running, and we pretty much hit the ground running. It went pretty well. So I sort of had a vision um, by putting the computer system in that I could control as big an, en- an enterprise as the thing might grow to. And in fact, it went so well that within six weeks, I'd opened the second store in Papatoi, uh, and three and a half months later the third store out in Henderson because at that time there were a number of uh, large wholesalers in New Zealand and they were starting to struggle and they had quite large amounts of inventory that they were only getting small amounts of money back from the major retailers on and I was able to liquidate the product for them and they got a lot more back. Was that a surprise to you that you were able to launch that many stores that quickly or did you have a did you have an inkling of that, you know, a plan up front that you thought you would be able to move pretty quickly with this? I mean, it, certainly it was a smart approach to be able to uh, launch in the way you did and not have to have the funds to buy all of the product up front. No, I would say that um, if I was really honest, um, I started off thinking if I can just run one store um, and run it su- successfully, uh, you know, I can feed the family. Um, and I can have a good little business, and that would do me. Um, however, you know, if you've been working in a $22 million business, which I had, and had a lot of staff, um, some of your old traits start to come back quite quickly. And, you know, I found very, very early on that um, doing absolutely everything myself was not the way I was wanting to work. Uh, and, I, and so I started to hire some good people and to delegate, and the opportunities just kept coming. And, you know, from running a pretty big enterprise at George Courts, from a merchandise perspective, I felt that, you know, I could keep expanding, which is what we did. Great. And then from there, obviously to the point where the warehouse is now, with dozens and dozens of stores around the country, what was that, what was that process going from three stores 
to that uh, that ongoing expansion, and now of course you've got warehouse uh, stationery in the mix as well. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think if you go back from today, you know, we're, th- this next financial year we're planning to do about two point six billion dollars in sales with the warehouse stores, the warehouse stationery, and now Noel Leemings, who we've bought, and on top of that, we've acquired. Uh, about 10 new companies, mainly in the online area. Uh, and the way I think you could say we got there was, number one, um, finding people that would share the vision and wanted to go with it as fast as I did. And what I found was because of the success initially of the of the warehouse, there were plenty of those people coming knocking on my door. And so I started a number of regional companies. They all traded under the name The Warehouse. But we typically had a 25% shareholder running a region, um, another 25% shareholder working with me here in Auckland at, at HQ, and I owning 50% under the the Auckland um, organisation, and that grew uh, quite quickly. So you know we we went from 1982 when we started through till 1994, so 12 years, where we. Um, basically filled out most of the country, um, but in a way that uh, is quite different from today. So a lot of the stores were not purpose-built. We would take over places like the Petoni Railway Station and turn it into a warehouse, um, various buildings around the country. Uh, and as a result of that, and having very good people and you know finding the right sort of merchandise uh, that people really wanted, uh, we, we grew very quickly. I might also add that we probably had a bit of luck early on too because the government of the day was starting to realise that low labour rates in Asia were helping a number of other countries to be able to um, give products to their citizens that they could afford. And so there was a breakdown in what we used to have, which was import licensing. And as, as products came off import licensing and they were given smaller tariffs, uh, we were able to take advantage of that and be very nimble and be the first people on the market with products um, that I'd learnt to buy when, it was, when I was at George Courts. And so it was very common for us to be able to launch a product at half the price that everyone else had it at. And, and we were quite bold in, in the amount of product we, we bought. Uh, I can remember, for example, uh, banana lounges in the early days. You know, I think I had something like 40 containers of those that I ordered because they were, we were half the price of everyone else and they just sold so quickly. So we went for the doctor on it and um, it paid off. Did you, did you find that having that, the ownership model that you discussed, did you find that sort of hindered you further on when you wanted to get to a, a point of view of listing and so on? Was that, I mean, obviously early on, some, some things that make sense may not make sense later on. Did, did that make it difficult? It didn't make it difficult, but it did lock the people who I'd partnered with in. And a number of those were people who I could see in the years to come were going to want to actually liquidate their assets and so to me after looking at a whole bunch of different ways of doing it you know we chose the IPO route and and we floated the company in 94. It wasn't a difficult thing but it did free us up to be able to use the public's capital 
uh, to free up some of the guys inside. Now, there was another real big reason for doing it, because in 1987, Kmart opened their first store in New Zealand in Henderson, and it, it happened to be their most successful store in Australasia. They did huge sales, and we were a fairly small, disparate type of operation in those days. And so between 87 and 94, I could see that we could have this massive hairy gorilla out of Melbourne, Australia, come in and basically eat our lunch. And I felt that if we were able to raise a reasonable amount of money uh, from the New Zealand public, we could put the foot on the accelerator and, and head them off at the pass. And, and that's exactly what we did. Um, once we raised the money in 94, for the following year, we opened 22 purpose-built stores around the country, uh, which is a massive feat. I mean, I don't think we could actually do that today with the size of organisation we've got, but we did it. And that really set the warehouse on the really big growth path and enabled us to um, to burn off you know the big competitors from uh, from offshore so in terms of those the arrangements that you had with the um, the the store owners you'd worked something in initially in terms of how you, how you would move them from that um, to being to being publicly owned that's something you'd planned up up front Yes, I mean it was pretty easy really because uh, what we did was with me owning the sort of the, the master franchise and the other guys owning uh, 50%, sorry, 25% each of the other companies, it was really easy to determine what their shareholding would be in the new entity because we just added the whole lot up and then divided it by the, uh, the profitability per region and that was their share of the new entity. Great, and then... Once you had, once you had IPO'd, there's you know obviously considerable growth since that time. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you, how you kept that going with this competition uh, in regards to you know Kmart, obviously with deep pockets and and that you know very successful launch into New Zealand. How, how did you play that? Well, uh, what we did, I think, was listen to the customer. Um, you know, New Zealand was. Um, faltering uh, during that period you know we had good years and bad years but we had something that was quite unique with uh, the red sheds in those days you know it was a it was a basic concrete floor pallet racking type operation uh, and we tried to keep things low cost uh, and I think in those days the public really related to that because they could see that you know they were genuinely getting a bargain um, the market's become quite a bit more sophisticated these days and, and there's a lot more malls around and much more fancy stores and, and you've seen a huge number of small retailers pile in from overseas, in particular Australia. But I think we we listened very closely to the customers and, and we opened up in new categories that, that people were asking for. Uh, we followed the big trends of, of offshore um, and I think just because of our operational excellence we managed to to get an edge on our competition and to grow much faster than everyone else did. Now, talking about that operational excellence, everyone wants to be in that position, you know, where they're getting things right. But what are the uniques that you've done in leading the warehouse to achieve that? Well, I've tried to incorporate the knowledge of the team as opposed to try and dictate. And you know, I've really been out of uh, management for 10 years now so I decided when I got to about I started when I was just over 50 and after I'd been in the business for 20 years and we'd had you know 20 years of exceptional growth I've always believed that you need fresh blood and you need new ideas and new people 
And as we continued to refresh the management team while I was running the company, you know, we used the combined wisdom of everybody uh, and their experience. And, and we mainly hired retailers, obviously, um, to actually keep growing the business. Since then, you know, we've had our ups and downs. We had a, we had a crack at Australia and we're very surprised that uh, the Australians took us so seriously um, and put a massive amount of effort into uh, <laughs> doing what we'd done to Kmart in New Zealand, actually. Uh, and so we retreated from that and decided we'd just operate out in New Zealand. But we also saw overseas trends like stationery, and so started the warehouse stationery, and that business has grown to you know 60 stores today and uh, a substantial business, $300 million. Um, and, you know... We're also watching the world trends, and you'd have to say with the world trends at the moment are that retail stores across the globe are starting to reduce. Uh, you're seeing big box retailers um, starting to have lesser stores, sell some stores, reduce the size of their stores. Uh, you're seeing retail changing dramatically with uh, what's happening with Amazon and a number of other online plays. And I think what's happened is that when I first started in retail, the power of retail was actually was, was with the supplier. When the warehouse was really hitting its straps in the sort of 90s, to early 2000s, that power had gone to the retailer. We were, we were Big retailers could sort of dictate more to suppliers and get better prices out of them. Whereas when I was you know, at George Courts, it was the other way around. You know, we, we were begging for product. And now the whole thing has shifted to the power of the consumer. And so, you know, have a look at the people that are walking around every day with mobile devices and checking prices. And, you know, we're, we're enabling every one of our stores w- with Wi-Fi. Uh, and the software that's out there these days, people can make comparisons. They can buy online while they're looking in, in your stores. So we've got to be much sharper than we ever have been and combine online shopping with bricks and mortar shopping. And that's really the direction we're going in today. And is that something that you think you can succeed at? How far do you see the the online e-commerce coming to in the picture? I mean, certainly when you look at the likes of Amazon, I mean they they just keep growing in, in leaps and bounds, sort of year to year. They're not making any money, of course, but it, you know, but it does does seem that more and more of us are going to uh, to that type of purchase. I, I guess that's part of your picture with the warehouse in terms of your your online element too that's exactly right and we have to be we have to be better than they do uh, to to survive this and there are a number of things that people use as a criteria to purchase online Um, and we've just brought in recently uh, click and collect Uh, that's a big one for people that you know a lot of people are not at home um, during the day and it's a big deal for them to have something delivered by courier so to be able to buy for us it's a big co- convenience thing we are obviously watching global prices all the time we're trying to stay competitive with virtually everything um, and you know that is really going to drive retail in the future is uh, if Amazon's got something at a certain price we've got to have it at at least that price as well but have the convenience of people being able to come and either collect from our stores or know that they've got someone in New Zealand that they can trust to service the product or take it back or give them advice or install. You know, there's all those things that we, as being a a presence on the ground in New Zealand, can achieve that somebody from the States can't. And how important 
is it that people buying offshore, when they're buying lower cost items, can do that without having to pay GST? Is that a problem in the New Zealand market? I know there's been a lot of uh, yeah, controversy in the Australian market where there's, a, I guess, a much higher cap for uh, for GST. I think it's uh, people have got to import something worth over a thousand Australian dollars, which yeah, current exchange rates, what we're we talking about, maybe twelve hundred New Zealand. But it's about a third of that here. Do you see that being, uh, you know, being being a challenge for retailers in New Zealand? Well, clearly we study this all the time. And what's happened in the states now is that people have realised uh, the unfair advantage that Amazon has had by state, and so the states are changing the rules. And what's happening, uh, you know, from here on is that if you buy something in a particular state off Amazon. If they don't have the stock in that state, you're going to have to pay the local sales tax um, and, and other duties, etc. So I think this is a global phenomenon, and I, I really believe this is taking, uh, you know, this is taking charge now. And you'll see Australia probably move before we do, but I could see them lowering the amount of GST free break in Australia quite substantially, and I think New Zealand would probably probably do the same. Um, if they don't, then we've got to be cleverer ourselves and, and maybe you know supply the products from a different country ourselves. So there's all sorts of ways that you have to, to look at being competitive. Yeah, it does seem there's one or two that have started that sort of thing where they've got a local presence, but also you can buy from them online and the product sort of ships in and, and, and scoots sort of under the under the radar from a GST uh, perspective. That's right. And, but the, I think the biggest opportunity for us, to be fair, is you know, you've got 25-odd million people just across the ditch. And while we weren't able to um, compete because of the enormity of the competition slamming on us there, um, we think we can compete on an online basis. Uh, and as you say, you know, if they keep the $1,000 break, well, that's, that's terrific for us because we can supply X New Zealand straight into Australia and they don't have to pay the GST on it. We bought uh, a company called Torpedo 7, which specialises in sporting goods, and they have a very big database and a, and a lot of business in Australia. So that was our entree into supplying offshore from New Zealand. And how's that gone? How how far down the track are you with with supplying into Australia through Torpedo Seven? Well, we we took over the business in April of this year in terms of a fifty one percent shareholding, so we're still working very closely with the original owners. But as I said, they already have a substantial business in Australia, so we just carry on with that, and we're able to utilise the knowledge we're getting from Torpedo Seven across our other online businesses. Right. So in time, we're likely to see the warehouse sort of selling in a similar manner into the Australian market? Yes, well, we, we, what happens is when you offer something online, you're actually oper- offering it to everybody globally. And sure. it's quite surprising um, when you have a look at some of the customers we've got in different countries all over the world where they, where they actually buy from already, albeit that it's not huge volume. Uh, but you know, as we learn from Torpedo 7, as we learn what customers want from us, um, in Australia, we will obviously we'll leverage that. Okay, oh, that's interesting. Now, I mean, looking at your experiences, uh, you know, through the journey with the warehouse, and there are obviously you know, a number of other uh, businesses that you've invested in over, over the years. You've got the the Tyndall Foundation, which I'd like to to, to talk about as well. Uh, Care the, these various organisations. 
are there any sort of particular lessons that stands out from from those things that you'll often share with people as you're giving advice to business owners, advice to leaders, maybe you know, people you've invested in their businesses and so on? I think probably uh, the area that I would give specific advice in would be through our K1W1 venture capital arm. And if I sort of backtrack a little bit, uh, I, I believe that New Zealand is a, an amazing place. I think it's, you know, one of the few places in the world that has just incredible freedom, um, a, a marvellous landscapes, just a tremendous uh, attitude um, towards people. And I like to think that, you know, we can keep getting better and better. And, and so I've sort of dedicated my life to reinvesting the money that, that comes from the dividends in the warehouse, which are all tax paid, back through a two, a two organisations. So the first one is K1W1, and we've invested now in, in roughly 120 startup companies. And our criteria is that uh, the business has to be started in New Zealand, the R and D has to be done in New Zealand, but they have to be globally facing. So they, you know, we encourage young entrepreneurs to to go and uh, get out of New Zealand and sell their wares and their products and their technology. Um, and as we learn from some companies, we can then pass that advice on to others. So probably a good example is the Kiwi Landing Pad in San Francisco that we've been a co-founder of. A lot of the companies we fund go up and, and uh, basically camp in, in that building. Uh, they get their own desk, and they use that as a stepping stone to the rest of the states. And then the other side, of, as you mentioned, is the Tyndall Foundation. So We've now given away uh, around about $115 million um, in donations around New Zealand and you know we're planning on giving a lot more. And once again, that's on the basis of a hand up, not a handout. It's uh, to reward people that are working really hard in their communities to try and make New Zealand a better place who need capital to do that. And you know, once again, over the sort of 15 years, we've learnt how we can inject the money into the right places, into the right people with the right ideas that actually advance New Zealand um, to being a stronger place. So, you know, all in all, it's a real privilege to be able to, to have been able to, to grow a big business that does churn out a lot of dividends and then be able to reinvest that back in the people of New Zealand. And when you look at, I guess, some of those uh, K1W1 investments that you've made, when you look back at those now, do you do you see examples of where they you know probably would have got stuck without the the funding and and some of those that have really shot ahead with the, with the help of the funding you've been able to inject? Yes, well the, the the venture capital market in New Zealand is a very skinny one, and I think it's fairly well recognised that we are the largest in our sector. We we funded um, a lot more than anyone else have. Um, I was. Involved in the early days with helping the government look at setting up something like the Venture Investment Fund, which the which is now going very strongly and is probably the second biggest uh, investor in in uh, venture capital here in New Zealand. Uh, and you know, you learn as you go. Uh, but I think it is fair to say that um, there's been a lot of companies that wouldn't have got going had we not put the money into them. But I think we've also probably created a bit of a leadership forum in that. There's been a lot more people now starting to get into it. Uh, there are the angel investors springing up all over New Zealand right now. There's uh, a number of incubators. 
Uh, and so the whole sector is growing quite quickly. And if you look at countries like Israel and, and the United States, particularly Silicon Valley and, and the areas up around Boston that are actually driving the economy of the US, they're, they're being driven out of innovation. Uh, you know, and only got to look at, you know, the big tech companies in Silicon Valley like, you know, Apple and Google. Um, and I believe New Zealand can be a hub for that sort of thing in the future, but we do have to invest in them at early stage and help them really get going. And is it hard for you to uh, to find those? And do you think do you think it's hard for some of those startups to know you know where to look and you know how to how to connect with K one W one and and you know the the other sources of investment? Or, or are we getting better now at knowing what processes to get through to to find that investment? Yeah, I think we're getting a lot better because of you know, people like the the different angel funds and a number of other small organisations that help give advice. Uh, people, I mean, there, there wouldn't be a week go by when we wouldn't have at least ten <laughs> people coming to us with a, with advice. Oh, sorry, with um, a request for funding. So, yep, they're finding us no trouble at all. That's good. That's good. So, out out of the ten that would come to you, how how do you whittle it down? From let's say you've got ten this week that come to you, how do you whittle that down and, and pick out the one a month or the one a week, etc., that uh, would be one that, that you would then you know, look much more seriously at? Well, I think there's, uh, there's, a, there's a number of different aspects to it. The first one is, is the idea. So you, you look very closely at, um, based on your experience of looking at lots of different companies over the years, whether the idea has legs, you know, and is it globally sustainable? Is it globally scalable? Those are the, that's probably number one. Number two are the people, um, and quite often you'll get a really bad idea, but great people, <laughs> or you'll get a really bad idea. I'm sorry, a really good idea with not such good people, and so uh, you, you're look, always looking for that combination of a great idea plus good people. And then we've got a sort of a little saying going, which is you get one point for the plan and nine points for the execution out of ten. And and clearly, therefore, we then really, I, I guess, push those people we invest in to execute their strategy and their, and their plan so that they can grow the company. And sometimes that's difficult conversation with people. Um, you know, a lot of people get what what's called founder-itis, which means, you know, they've got an idea of what it should look like and that's the only way they're going to do it. And, and then sometimes, you know, you you stop funding them and, they, and, you know, they can't carry on. And so you make a suggestion, they just become a shareholder and you find someone who can carry on the idea. So all in all... Um, I think there's an enormous amount of opportunity in New Zealand with what's coming through and you know we're having a great time helping these people get started and and then growing from there. That's great. And I mean from what you're what you're seeing is there a particular sort of thread to the innovation that that's coming out of New Zealand? There are definitely streams that we can see. Um, we're we're quite long in uh, biotech, so there are a lot of biotechs that we funded, and I think New Zealand's very good at biotech. Um, you've only got to look at our health sector, and quite a number of these ideas come out through the health sector. Um, then there's the IT innovation that's coming through. That's definitely, you know, uh, I believe you've you've spoken to Rod Drury at Zero recently, and. 
you know, he's a great example of how you can scale uh, a SaaS model, and, and so we're getting into a lot of those at the moment. There's um, environmental technology. We Both at the Tyndall Foundation and in K1W1, we hope that we can help make a difference around mitigating carbon in, in the world, and so we're investing in a lot of environmental-type technologies. Those are the sort of main themes that we go for, but... Um, there are other things that come along that are, you know, a bit more traditional that we also fund. Okay, great. So the Tyndall Foundation, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that, how that came to be? I think my philanthropy roots began uh, 26 years ago now. Uh, it was when I was first at, when I was at George Courts, actually, um, I met some people in the Philippines that we used to trade from. And then when I started the warehouse 31 years ago, uh, I kept trading with them. And every time I went back to the Philippines and bought product, I realized that, um, you know, there was abject poverty there. And I thought there's got to be something we can do to help. And so we started an organization called Alay Buhai in the local Tagalog language, which stands for Offering a Future. And initially, we got into funding education. So when you go to the Philippines, there's lots of beggars on the streets, and most of them are little kids. And they don't go to school because the parents are so poor that the the kids are are there to sell things, and and they even get involved in prostitution and that type of stuff. So we managed to to find an order of nuns that were prepared to actually gather these kids up uh, with their families, and we put money in to provide them with uniforms and books and, and stuff. Education there is free and provided by the government, but because the kids couldn't afford to go there, they weren't. So just through a a combination of having the right people overseeing the project um, and, you know, with such a big religious community there, they actually respected the nuns hugely and and went along with the program. Um, Ali Buhai's now educated over 30,000 people. And I went back for the 25th anniversary last year and we had 1,700 come to an assembly. And most of those people were either doctors or lawyers or engineers or professionals who had come from very poor backgrounds. So that's where I got started. Um, When we floated the warehouse in 94, you know, clearly um, we manifested our our wealth. So up until then, I really had only just taken wages on the basis of feeding the family, really, um, buying a new house, sure, but not really taking you know, a lot of money out. All of a sudden, you know, we had a public company that was generating a lot of dividends. And so um, my wife, Margaret, and I thought, well, you know, we'd like to give back as much as we could. So we started the foundation so that a, a big chunk of those dividends would go back into the community. And that's what's happened. That's great. And so today, what are the sorts of organisations that the Tyndall Foundation gets behind and supports? What sorts of things? Well, I think we tend to be uh, quite innovative and, and we get involved really with innovation across the, the board to try and look at new ways of solving uh, some of society's issues. Uh, first of all, we support what we call our funding managers, which are people that are actually right there at the coalface every day, right across New Zealand, that are doing things to help their local communities um, in, in, for example, budgeting services, helping people to budget better, um, being there with um, emergency housing if it's required, um, you know, the, the likes of uh, Women's Refuge, all those types of organisations that are service-based but help people just every day. 
Uh, and then we then we look at sort of much bigger goals about how we can attack some of the the areas that need um, a real helping hand. And you know, one of those is um, youth unemployment. So we've put a lot of effort into uh, that sector, and we we've done it in conjunction with the health sector because the health sector provides stable jobs. Um, particularly the DHBs in the hospitals, and their high-paying jobs. So we've created a pipeline from getting kids in schools to change their arts aspirations to science ones, showing them how they can go and get a job in a, in a hospital, taking the parents with them so that the parents buy into the idea and don't force them out to work when they're 16. And, and we've, we're now seeing that these kids are coming through and... You know, those families are going to be transformed because the kids are going to be earning sixty or seventy grand a year instead of fifteen or or twenty thousand. Um, similarly, in the you know one of our philosophies is um, promoting generosity, and we've we've set up across the country um, organisations uh, called community um, foundations, and over the years we've been able to get those to 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 come to fruition and there's about 160 million dollars now being raised uh, in various forms for these foundations which are then using that capital the interest off the capital to put back into their local communities so i mean i would encourage anyone that's interested just to go on our website and have a look i mean we're we're many and varied in all the the things that we get involved in um but there's just a couple of themes for you to to get to, to get some understanding that's great I guess you know every every leader, every business leader that that has success usually has a few techniques and so on in terms of how they how they operate. How is there anything you can share with us around how you work? Do you get up early in the morning? Are there are there some you know particular uh, Stephen Tyndallisms that maybe you can share with us? Well, I, I used to get up very early in the morning. So the the days of um, you know growing the warehouse, I, I would get up you know between four and five. And get a lot of work done uh, before I took the kids to school. So I've, I've always been a family man. I've got five children. And I've now got four grand, granddaughters. And I've been hugely interested in my family. So I've tried to work outside school hours on that. And um, I've managed to um, to be able to achieve that. I've, I've coached rugby teams and, and particularly cricket teams over the years. So I, I think... For me, the most important thing was getting a balance in life. You know, I think if you if you just put your heart and soul only into business and you don't have other interests, um, A, you probably become pretty boring, but, but B, you don't get those other life experiences that you can bring back into, into your business life. So um, I suppose one of the most important things for me has been just being true to myself and saying, you know, um, how would I do this? Um, and benefit others as opposed to myself and of course with that comes an enormous amount of pride and joy because you know you can see you're making a difference in other people's lives and the same thing happens really through our business we've had um, quite a a strong view that um, that our people come first and that if we treat them really well then they will be the right people for our customers and that goes, you know, with our, along with what we're doing now with our career wage. So, you know, the the, the living wage people um, are advocating a, a minimum of eighteen dollars forty an hour, and, and we're paying that to people that have worked for us for a number of years and done the training, and that's coming through well. We give them a lot of 
good privileges, you know, um, their birthdays off on full pay, four weeks off after 10 years service, um, you know, free um, a free funeral service for their families, very healthy discounts, etc. So it's all about treating people the way you want to be treated yourself. And I think if you can bring that into your everyday life and into your business life, you know, it's very rewarding. Um, the other thing that's probably worth mentioning is I talked before, you know, about my passion for New Zealand. And so many of us have actually gone and moved overseas. And so we, we've sort of monitored that. And they reckon there's about a million Kiwis with passports that live overseas and we've tried to make those people part of New Zealand by starting an organisation called KIA, the Kiwi Expat Association and we've now got about 180,000 of those people signed up online Uh, and we have a world class New Zealand group that offer advice to New Zealanders that are trying to do things either here onshore or offshore and those are people that have got huge experience in business and, 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 and in life um, and then, you know, right down to the, the on sort of the Facebook type of social media with someone arriving in a foreign country and they can look up uh, within a, few, you know, a radius of how many Kiwis there are from where they're standing and, you know, call them up and, and meet them for a drink or sleep on their floor for the night or whatever. You know, Kiwis helping Kiwis. That's great. And, and that's working a treat. So, you know, I, I think... If you said, you know, what what is a, a Stephen Tyndallism? A, a Stephen Tyndallism for me is feel good. Uh, the feel good factor about doing something that when you've done it, you think, boy, that was really worth doing and I feel good. Excellent, excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. And and lastly, if there are um, any of our audience that have got an idea that, that, that they would like to pitch to you for funding, how do they go about doing that? Uh, they can definitely find me. Um, <laughs> if you have a look on Google or, you know, um, ha- have a look on YouTube, you, you know, there's all sorts of ways that they'll find me. Uh, there's been no problem with anyone not finding uh, either myself or our teams. And, um, you know, we welcome anyone coming forward with any ideas they've got. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Stephen. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. Pleasure. I trust you gained something from hearing Sir Stephen Tyndall on the New Zealand Business Podcast today. To hear announcements and details of future episodes, you can sign up for our free email updates at nzbusinesspodcast.com or find us also on Twitter and Facebook. And you can also follow me, Paul Spain, on Twitter at Paul Spain. And if you're an iPhone or a Mac user, we'd be grateful if you'd rate the New Zealand Business Podcast on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. The New Zealand Business Podcast, brought to you by BNZ, helping you be good with money.